in this episode with Ricky de Aguilar. Interesting conversation. Ricky's best known for his microlight adventure called Freedom Flight. Ricky and Alan Honeyborn set off from Cape Town in 2004 on a microlight journey to cover their whole globe. It wasn't trouble-free, and in fact, uh, Alan lost his life on the journey two-thirds of the way in after traveling 40,000 kilometers across several continents already. They ran into trouble in a storm, and sadly, Alan didn't make it. It is a part of the conversation which we, uh, we talk on quite extensively, and it is the part of the conversation that uh, Ricky has taken life lessons out of with risk and safety and planning and with the, the benefit of being a bit older and wisdom and looking back on your life and decisions that you had made. So it was an interesting conversation understanding more about the man behind the adventure. He's gone on to do lots of other adventures too. We didn't have time to talk about the other adventures but it does include places like 4x4ing from Cape Town to Mongolia and motorbike trips around South America and mountain climbing some of the biggest mountains in the world. Ricky's a fascinating guy and good insights and learnings that he's had over his uh, journey and his life of adventure. And in fact, that's his next project, which we touch on towards the end of the conversation. Please enjoy Ricky D'Aguila. Well, okay, so we spoke a little bit about the, the backstory to why there is a podcast and, uh, and where we're at. But I'm very excited to have you here, Ricky. This is now... First guest in the new studio, so this is uh, exciting for me and a little bit uncomfortable as well because, you know, I haven't done this. I've just been in the Zoom and I have my behind-the-scenes stuff. I can make notes and I can look at things, but but welcome. I'm honored to have you as my first guest. If we were in a pub now, then we'd probably have this kind of conversation. And let me just dial it back a little bit for, for, for your uh, benefit, where I come from. And I thought about this a lot recently. I've spent a lot of time in my life in a flight deck. I'm coming up to 9,000 hours, so you can imagine sitting even closer than this now, you know, arm's length from somebody for, if you add up all the minutes over, it's, it's a long time to sit next to somebody. And what do you do when you're sitting up close and personal with somebody is you end up chit-chatting. And in my experience, pilots are generally quite social. You do get the different types that are a little bit more reserved and quiet. Those are the typical fighter pilots. But sitting close to one another with a lot of things in common, you might even have the same background, you probably even had the same squadrons or wherever your, your journey was to get to that point. So for me, it's a natural tendency to just open up and chit-chat and find out. And, and these conversations I've been having for 25 years now. So now I'm recording them and the, the listener gets the benefit of the podcast and, uh, and I get to meet more people more deliberately. I don't have to wait to be in the flight deck with somebody new or to go to a pub somewhere in London on a, on a night stop. But this kind of conversation has been going a long time. You fly with somebody new. So tell me about yourself. And where did you train? And so let's dial back the years as if it was one of those conversations. Imagine we had 39,000 feet on our way to Frankfurt in the Airbus 350. <laughs> and I'm flying with Captain Ricky D'Aguila. Did I, I say like that it. right? D'Aguila? Uh, you did. But the captain part sounded good. <laughs> <laughs> good. Okay, so let's go back to Ricky in high school. I like that sort of 14, 15, 16-year-old person. What's out there? What's shiny? What's getting your attention? What makes you think about the world? Who are you looking at? Where are you wanting to go? What is your excitement at that point? I think as a, as a teenager at school, I was just your average naughty boy. Probably hectically naughty. <laughs> but if I think back, the one thing that did stand out was that initiative of the naughtiness. You know, there was always this like inquisitiveness and can do and let's try this. And, you know, um, that sort of tendency was there uh, right 
as far back as I can think. And I think that kind of is the part that drives you towards exciting ideas and trying to follow through with them. Um, Yeah, so that was pretty good. I think... Where's that? In Cape Town? Where did you go? In Cape Town, yeah. And I think uh, one of the... There are probably two influential, fundamental sort of things that happened in early life. And the one was... Um, listening to uh, Neil Armstrong landing on the moon, that kind of had like a wow, outside the box thing. You know, it was something that stirred something in me there that I never, ever forgot. Um, And it was something to go out and do uh, big stuff and wild stuff. And, you know, it's just there was something that went on there. Um, But then the next, I would say most crucial fundamental uh, thing was um, when I, I was in the Air Force, you know, conscription, the normal okay. uh, thing. And I didn't know that. All right. Well, what were you mm, doing? Where were you based? You know, naughty boys, get them, get around. <laughs> they go where they want to go. And yeah. I got myself into the Air Force. <laughs> were you based down here? Uh, I landed up in Aesterplatt in Cape Town, yes, okay. of course, because of all sorts of social reasons, sure. you know, made up stuff. And, you know, I got myself to Aesterplatt, which is so nice. I really, really enjoyed that time. Mm. Um the uh, fundamental part came straight after that when you finish your two years service now what you're going to do next and um, of course studying was on the agenda but i just thought no nah, you know i want to do something and i i came up uh, i met a friend who said he's going to go travel around the world and with more investigation he was actually just going to travel around europe okay. and i remember something going on in the back of my mind thinking but if you can travel Europe, I can do the world. You know, <laughs> there's this little arrogant monster inside. Sure. And um, but sorry, so this is what sort of year is this? This is the early eighties. Mm. Okay, uh, 80, so we we kind of eighty one uh, in South Africa. We kind of a little bit. Uh, isolated from the world and the opportunity to travel is a little bit restricted, etc. And we don't have this big global view of the world. So to think like that... It's uh, very limited. You yeah. know, your a South African passport got you to a handful of countries. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and got and you you're already thinking the world, in not jail just Europe. And the rest, like I found out <laughs> along the way. But um, yeah, it was something that... Uh, and then I turned to my father thinking, I'm going to get some resistance here. Um and I said to him, look, uh, I'm thinking I'm going to travel around the world. And he looked at me and he said, that's a fantastic idea. You must go out and do it. That's really, really a great idea. And the fact that he had approved and said yes, mm. kind of like was wow, first of all. I thought like, jeez, mm. you know, got out of this without even getting a hiding. That was pretty good. <laughs> and... Um, you know, his approval was like, uh, to me, it almost forced on a commitment that that's what I was going to do. What, what, is, what is his background? What did he do as a profession? Had he traveled? Uh, no, no, good old Portuguese that had immigrated here in the okay. uh, in the late 50s and opened up his Store? little fish and chip shop and okay. then his little takeaways and so on. And he built the hardworking guy, seven days uh, a week. So crazy, crazy. You know, those Portuguese people, they make yeah. a lot of money. It's not because they make a lot. It's because they haven't got time to spend. <laughs> so <laughs> they just pile it all up. Um, yeah, so he was pretty hardworking. And um, I think... Because he'd left his country and origin and all that sort of stuff. He was okay. a bit more worldly, if you could put it that way. Okay. Um, yeah, and I headed off, uh, bought, got enough money to buy a plane ticket and $100 left over and a backpack and that was it. And I set out and crossed the world, you know, Europe and then the States and got robbed and sleeping in 
graveyards and goodness weirdness. It was such an amazing experience. Okay, so this time is all about I want I want experience. I don't want to get out there. You weren't thinking of career or studies, or you were thinking about where can I go and explore and a career. A career and studies were, was there. There was kind of this definite that's going to be part of a mission somewhere. But now I'm taking a year off to go mm. and do this. Um, and yeah, across the world, the states, and off to Taiwan, and, and you know, Korea, these kind of places, and Thailand, and made it back. And was, I started off with a hundred dollars. Even then, a hundred dollars was nothing. Yeah. Um, and I groveled my way around and worked and did everything and uh, succeeded. So I got back like really full of confidence. And was it a full year that you were away? It was an entire year. Yes. And um, how many countries did you hit? Twenty uh, can't, odd, can't remember. Odd. Something like twenty years. Um, and uh, but uh, you know you need to take a step back into the era mm. and think like there's no such thing as cell phones and fax machines and you know <laughs> you're in trouble. There's no search and rescue. There's nothing. You like totally either. where you where things go wrong is where you're going to land up. You know. So even making a phone call was like you had to book it and do the sort of first charge thing. It was a whole big drama. Yeah. I think uh, telegrams were the new thing or the best thing <laughs> that you could work on. So it's safe to say you, while you were away, you had minimal contact with family and friends. You were just you. minimal. It was just you. You were just yeah, going. Just me. And uh, I, then um, the I used to use, <laughs> let's call it email, in that wherever I went, I'd buy these postcards and write little notes to myself and address oh. it to myself and post it back to Cape Town. Okay. So when I got back to Cape Town, that way everybody would know where I've been, what I'm doing, and all that sort of stuff. So that was the email of the era, sending right. yourself postcards <laughs> from wherever you are. Um yeah, and that's how I communicated and just got going. It was an incredible experience. I can see um, your face is lighting up about it. You, you're obviously touching down in a few places as you as you're thinking about yeah. the story. I mean, but I think a, I think the 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 crucial part, and if I kind of look at you know life as things have changed, um, is that having been to the army or the defense force and having been beaten the shits out of, you kind of come up. Tough and yep. strong and hard. Yep. And that was the base from which I was coming from. And everything was so easy and so soft and so like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I look at today's work environment and I think like, oh, guys, you got a long journey to travel before you toughen up to the reality of life. Yeah, school <laughs> but, of hard knocks is tough. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of, you know, the sooner you toughen up, mm the more fun you're going to have yeah. and the more exciting life's going to be and your options just like uh, explode, uh, you know. You can get out and do things. And, and you can do anything. Well, uh, just as you're speaking now, I'm thinking again about another time where I was, again, as an 18-year-old. I told you this was going to be like a bar conversation. <laughs> so rewind back to the late 90s. I'm in California and I'm, I'm just really pissing around. I'm, I've, I've got no purpose other than to, you know, have some beers tonight with my mates that I'm, I'm sleeping on a couch. I'm there to play roller hockey and ice hockey and travel, and I'm waiting to start the Air Force. So I took a year off, and, uh, and I used that year as a bit of a mark time, a bit of a travel, but at the end of the year, I can honestly tell you, Ricky, that I felt like, well, I need to do something more than just be a bum. Like, sure. uh, I lived a bit like a bum, you know, I'll be, I'll be honest. I mean, I could have done something more productive or more useful with my time, more efficient, and I didn't. I just, I just pissed around waiting for my chance to start. But then when I did start and the, the opportunity to dive into pilot training and there's a lot to learn, 
it really filled me up then. And I realized, okay, so what I did then, I can't do that for the rest of my life. This is more my purpose. And uh, I'm hearing that when you sort of got stuck in with studying and understanding the, the mathematics, the equations, the, the sort of uh, the technical side of the, of the profession, also kind of centered something in you. Did you have that similar experience? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, I think we all built differently and stuff. And my sort of makeup is I'm very mission driven. I've mm. got to have a goal and focus and I go for it. Yeah. And obviously sometimes to the extreme, sometimes out of proportion to the exclusion of everything going on around. Um, and so I'm built that way. Um, so it worked for me. And uh, you know, I did uh, study civils and all that sort of stuff and recognized right very, you know, shortly after I studied that this is not going to be for me. It's. Um, did you work in the profession as well once you qualified? Uh, no. Oh. I, once I finished, I did work for a construction company, a big construction company for some experience, just for a year. Okay. And that was it. It's probably the last time I ever worked for a boss. So, <laughs> um, so what was the next thing then? So you've, you've qualified now, you've tried this year of experience, and then what, what, what is I started the- my own business, and it was... The easiest for me was to be in building. Okay. Um, so I started off in building and fiddled away and realized that's a dead loss. <laughs> There's no, uh, building is a huge disaster loss sort of environment. Okay. And I picked that up quite quickly and I realized I'm not going to make money here. And then I started fiddling with property. Okay. And then put in some offers on some things and I had no money and it was just your normal start off chaos, you know, and going to banks and begging for money and <laughs> all this sort of stuff. And I'd gone in over my head and um, actually what happened was I put in an, a tender to buy four plots or pieces of ground mm-hmm. um, from government and uh, it was approved. <laughs> so oh, now you had to scramble. <laughs> now I had to buy it, and I had no money, no nothing. Wow. But fortunately at the time, uh, the banks weren't as connected with each other as they are now. Okay, so so I got my accountant to fabricate some figures that made me look uh, <laughs> cash flush and um, went off to four different banks, and all four of them approved. So I got four loans, four different banks for the four pieces of ground, and oh, wow. then all panic starts. And there's, there's but you've got a such a value. There's such a value to that panic. You know, if you're not stressing, you're not panicking, you're not going to perform at your at your best. Eh? Mm-hmm. And just I went out there, and immediately I. I just got out, uh, sat down at the desk, you know, the old drawing boards with the scale rulers and stuff like that. And I, I designed some houses for them. And I went down to council and said, that's what I want to build on these things. And they, you know, gave, looked at and asked for details and stuff like that. And I went off to the local estate agent. This all happening working like 16, 18 hours a day because you're panicking. Eh? Yep. So you're not going to sleep. <laughs> it's a, it's that level of panic. If you're sleeping, yep. you're not panicking. <laughs> it's, and within a few days, I had houses designed, everything, talking to agents and everything, blow me over the feather within the following week, I'd sold one of them. Wow. And I'd sold it for ridiculous prices I never, ever thought would happen. Which area is this? In Cape Town? Still? In Cape Town, in okay. Lakeside, yeah. Oh, wow. So I sold the first one and now, you know, then they, at the time, I arranged that they could take transfer of the land at an elevated price of mine. And, you know, so I made a profit, used that to cash flow the building process. And before you knew it, I was flying. And, okay. and you know, the markups then were massive, you know. Okay. So, so you and, then, and then I got, you know, then it was all gutsy and I can do this. And 
I'd go out and put in offers on land without having money and sell it, uh, you know, a few weeks later without taking transfer even. And okay. I was just, you know, like a wild cannon all over the place. <laughs> and, and it worked out. It, it all just unfolded and, and things. Again, there's, a degree, there's a degree of naivety, dumbness and energy that you mm. put all together that actually does work. Mm. But you've you got to be young at that to do stuff like that. Young, but also there's a risk there, but it's a bit of, it's a, bit of a calculation at risk you know because you've you've got an idea the value of something and you've got an idea that what somebody might pay and you've done a bit of building so you can kind of join some dots together that maybe someone else couldn't because you can see yes it's risky and yes it, that guy might not buy but logically there's a value here there's a value add here and there's a sale there and you can kind of see it it doesn't make it any easier when you need the balls to go and get the money and make this thing happen but but you can see a bit of a planned risk I think things were a lot simpler than that. <laughs> you know, that's a little bit too um, uh, deep thinking. It was more <laughs> a matter of like, you just just, um, you just go for everything. Mm. And then as it starts happening, you just go for more. And you just become <laughs> invincible and you just become all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I don't know how much analyzing and calculating that goes in there. You just okay. look at stuff and... Um, you know, there's, there's, I uh, must uh, qualify something in that I was very fortunate that I came from an immigrant mm. um, background um, sure. because immigrants normally are Hard worst working. off in mm. the can, new countries they go to. The odds are always against them yeah. um, and in favor of the locals. And because they arrive there, they get all this financial stress and all that sort of stuff so there's this immigrants financial insecurities that goes with all these things and because of it i came from a family of business people so you know when some um, of my other friends weren't allowed to talk about money around the dinner table that's all we spoke about and business i mean mm. i was a teenager and already knew how what the things you don't do with staff and how you form trusts and companies and all that sort of stuff so there was I was loaded with information that gave me a good base from which to function. Mm. Um, but also going back a step to simplify things is that when you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. Sounds like a Bob Dylan song. <laughs> Should I sing it? <laughs> um, but it's just like if you've got nothing and you're going for it and you've taken these chances and it's working out, What's the worst that could happen? You go back yeah. to square one. You yeah. know, it is not. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, once, uh, later on in life, as you get used to the comforts that, mm. uh, you know, these success and, and finances can deliver, then, then, you, don't become, no, then you don't want to lose that. <laughs> no, you don't want to play anymore. <laughs> it sounds like an exciting time. So I'm guessing you're sort of mid to late 20s here. Yep. When does the, the flying bug come into this? Or have you had some exposure uh, already? The flying has always been there from standard. Strong days. Uh, yeah, from the standard being a kid. Um, you know, just uh, building aeroplanes and then trying to make a rocket and you're blowing up Coke cans and all that sort of stuff. It was always there. So it wasn't like uh, ever thought of flying as, you know, should I consider doing it? Flying was something I was just always doing or going to do, you know, it wasn't there. Okay. And in fact, on the trip around the world in the United States, I came across some advert, you know, in those days it was a little advert in the newspaper about microlites and okay. you, how you build your own microlite. And I got the address and everything and, you know, wrote to them. And then they were telling me, oh, for so much, we give you the plans and all this kind of stuff. And when I got back to uh, Cape Town, I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a microlite. And then, but that's a three axis microlite. The 
I think it was Max CDL or something like that. Okay. Um, and uh, when I got back, I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And I stopped preparing. But I'm getting on with business and I need money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so. And somewhere, once again, in the newspaper, I see this little advert about learning to hang glide. So I thought, okay, cool. I'll learn to hang glide because then I know how to fly everything. <laughs> and I uh, learned to hang glide. And that started. So let's say two, three months after I came back from traveling around the world, I started learning to hang glide. Okay. And that, I would say, that went on for the next 20 years. And I got uh, quite in, in, into that in a, in a big way, you know, flying national and all that sort of stuff. Okay, so hang gliding is where it all kicked off. And that, that seems like a great, I mean, I've never done it. And actually, I haven't even done gliding yet. It's one of the things that I, has been eluding me for a long time, but I will, I will get there at some you point. You don't know how to fly an airplane <laughs> until, until you can fly a sailplane or something that doesn't have a motor. But it's a very appealing to, to be able to fly and there's no, well, no engine noise in it, like very little noise. And you, you're using the elements. I, I, I joke, you know, for many times in my life, I look, look at the things that I do. I go and play squash and I got to pay for lights. I go water skiing and I go pay, pay for petrol and you go flying, you know, you know, but to be able to do things like surfing where you just put a board on and you catching a wave or like hang gliding, you okay, it's a bit of effort to get going. But once you're in the air, there's no fuel that's burning. Those are quite appealing actually, kite surfing, but it does seem like a, a real connection with nature. You're studying the elements on a very, very small localized micro level. You can see when the gust's coming or when you're in the gust, it's time to, to grab this and, you know, get some energy here. Yeah, it's um, you really, really got to know what's going on around you. You got to feel it all, and you can mm. see nothing. Um, yeah. I, I class, it, I call it the playing three dimensional chess, three dimensional invisible chess. Okay, you can't <laughs> see anything. You can't. Any, you just prick on your senses, and it's uh, you. You've obviously got to learn mm-hmm. how. Um, about meteorology and how the currents and thermals and this and that and the next thing is going on. And, um, yeah, so the, the knowledge, that background knowledge of these invisible things are important. But then once you once you get going, it is such a – it's got such a challenge to it. You don't mm. just fly somewhere. You've actually got to make it happen. You yeah. Know, you get there and you feel this and is it the left wing, right wing, and you turn that way and then you're getting bounced all over the air in like a ping pong ball and you're going up and, you know, and then you organize all this chaos into something and then you're flying off somewhere, you know. And I think to say to somebody, because normally you need somebody to drive or something, to say to somebody, okay, I'll meet you in that town, you know, and it could be like 50, 100 kilometers away. Like, I mean, how can you say that? You don't even have an engine. You don't, you're just going to run off the side of this mountain here, you know. And and, and to say that with so much, uh, with a degree of confidence, means you understand what's happening out there in the air. Mm. Um, And to make it to the other side is such a sense of achievement and fulfillment. Um, So is that the main thing about hang is to go from A to B? Rather than time uh, to be or go there or and back or triangular. Yes, just depends what it is. I think generally it's just to challenge yourself that you can get up into the air and go mm. to places, you know. And um, so by the time you got into micro... the interesting part there is when you're flying these things, okay, not so much sailplanes because you can glide huge distances, but hang gliding, you're permanently in a state of emergency. Yeah. You're always going to crash. 
<laughs> you're going into crash somewhere now and you just got to be so aware of it and everywhere you go you're just looking for that okay i can land there i can do that i can do that so you know in the back of my mind you're getting up and you're going places but you're always watching your back you know because this thing is as easily as you came up is as easily as you can go down yeah. <laughs> so you're in an emergency permanently and i think that has stood me well very well in mm. in flying in general uh, I think the whole hang gliding experience has probably been 80% value in all my flying. Well, this is what I was going to uh, sort of lead into is that by the time you got into micro lighting, you've actually done a significant amount of hang gliding. Huge amount of hang yeah. gliding. Where I went was first the PPL, you know, so I get my little license to go fly airplanes and I just, it just didn't, didn't work do for me, for you. you know, and it just, because where do you go? Okay, you fly around the country a little bit, but then afterwards... And you ask somebody permission, and then you got to figure out where to land and what. Nah, that's all like, you know, I prefer to take off and say, oh, well, I don't know where I'm going to land. I'll figure out when I get there. So what's different about a, a microlight and a, and a Cessna 150 that did you see that it's so much more appealing? Do you like the element of the wind blowing around you? The, the fact that I could go and land in the middle of nowhere. Okay. The fact that I could um, fly up the coast and go and land Stop. on yeah. the Orange River you know, some little islands in the middle of mm. the Orange River and camp there, you know, the the fact that I could, you know, the freedom that came mm. with it was was like super important. Okay. Um, it was, I, I wouldn't categorize myself as a pilot. I'd categorize myself more as an adventurer. Okay. Whose little aircraft suits the needs for his adventure and the things that he does. Okay. So I think that the, the, the flying part is... It was second nature and also, you know, secondary. Adventure was primary. Okay, but so you, you eventually do get into the, the microlighting because it's a nice In a middle very time. big way. Okay. So very <laughs> big way. It just, from, take over? from day one, it just went overboard. Okay. It was, um, in fact, the way I learned to fly a trike is that um, I bought one from a hang gliding friend who'd, uh, who wasn't using it much. So I bought it from him. And then I grabbed hold of a friend, Richard Harris, and I said, you sit on the back and come and teach me how to fly this thing because he knew how to fly. And from the, I'd never said, I've never been taught from a back seat. I just climbed straight into the front seat and <laughs> off I went and him on the back telling me do and don't. And we okay. just went round and round and practiced and eventually got it. And um, I think after an hour or so, he got sick and tired of it and said, he got off and he said, go and do it yourself. It was just like the following week, I decided I'm going to go fly across the country. So okay. I just put my backpack on the back seat and filled up the tank and off I went right so across the country. Was... And I landed at some um, some place in the Transkei on the east of the country and um, landed there and an ex, a friend of mine who used to hang glide, he was the microlighting instructor there and he was so happy that I came to visit him and, you know, amazing, you know, this and that right across the country because there wasn't too much of it, you know, there wasn't mm -hmm. like the done thing. There were a few people who did, uh, did a few things, but it wasn't. And then so he was all happy to see me and it's fantastic. And then he started asking me a couple of questions and he said, oh, yeah, how long have you been flying for? So I said, no, I started last week. How <laughs> long? <laughs> How many hours? <laughs> no, when I left, I think I had three hours, <laughs> and it was, and he couldn't believe, uh, you know, that I'd done that, which I must say was not sensible. However, uh, I got away with it, but there was a certain sort of 
inner being that made these things possible. Mm. But uh, anyhow, so I went across the country and uh, I thought this is a fantastic way. I'm going yeah. to like go and fly up Africa. So I came back and sold that one and got a much better one with all the little bells and whistles that I could do big distances and everything. And this is all within a year. And then I got okay. into the th- into the light and you know by this there was very quick the microlighting fraternity got to hear about this this new ka- guy this kamikaze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, he's gonna it's gonna take himself out somewhere so okay. soon and all the rest. And um, yeah, I bought this new thing and then came the end of the year. It was like right off we go to Tanzania. Yeah, so I headed off uh, up Mozambique and uh, up to Tanzania and stuff like and that. Was this was a, the level of experience was like negligible. But the late nineties kind of thing. Uh, Early two thousand. Ninety, I think it started in ninety five. Okay, so yeah. and to cross borders and stuff. Then was it straightforward enough, or was it a circle well, no, like it is it now? Uh, it it wasn't as much of a struggle as it is now. I must admit. Okay. Um, you know, got hold of the Mozambique um, civil aviation and told them I'm doing this, and they seem to be. You know, there's something lovely about the African authorities that mm. they're not as you know nitpicky as mm. so many other parts of the world. And the, the guides of the aviation. The other thing is that you weren't dealing with like a massive organization. You were mm. talking to somebody on the other side of the phone and sending him the faxes he needed. So the international part, we had to fly into Maputo Airport. That was super Did you, So you went with more than just you? No, the first time I went on my own. And then on the way back down, um, I was heading back, um, I stopped it in Neisner at a microlighting airfield, and then I met um, Alan there. Okay. And he just heard what I did, and he just said, oh, man, I want to do that. If next time you're going on a trip, please, 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 please let me know. And uh, on the um, that trip up Mozambique, there were a few, one or two little things where I made me think like, shit, you shouldn't do this on your own, because okay. if things go wrong in these remote places, it could... Yeah, it could be very difficult. You need somebody else with to cover each other. It's always good back. to have a wingman. Yeah, and um, I said to him, "Sure," but I also used to, you know, everybody says yes, 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 and nobody does. You know, the amount mm. of doers on this planet is <laughs> minuscule. You know, <laughs> and the rest just try and survive off them. Um, and so I kind of thought, okay, another one of those people who are talking. And um, yeah, a few months later, I got hold of him and I said, "Look, I'm." thinking of doing a trip to Brazil. And he's like, what? I said, yeah, yeah, what I thought would be a good idea is we've got four or five guys who want to go and fly up the coast of Brazil and everything, put in, uh, put the microlights in containers, ship it over, and then do that Brazil-Argentina trip. And right. um, he thought it was a fantastic idea. I think it's fantastic. And I put the word out there and I just was inundated with people wanting to do it. And sure. they eventually got down to five five of us who were going to do it. And then guess how many actually did? They, none. It all <laughs> fell apart. It all fell apart. So I, I learned quickly that you know, the talkers and the doers, you know, just mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, nowadays if I say I'm going to do something, somebody says they want to come with, I say there's my bank account, put in X amount, otherwise keep quiet. And if they don't, if they do, they in. If they don't, they, <laughs> they buy the cancels, kids. Let's see if you're that serious. That cancels yeah. the conversation right there, you know, because yeah. the 
it's uh, I call it the pub talk, you know, mm. uh, like everybody to listen to you saying that you're going to do these fantastic things that you never do. Yeah. Um, okay, so this was brewing sort of from the mid '90s already. Your yeah, but I just want to mention yeah. to you this thing. So. Um, this Brazil thing fell apart mm -hmm. and we were so dependent on these other people joining in. Otherwise the costs were too astronomical. Sure. And, um, so there we stood and I said to Alan, well, why don't we do our own thing? Let's go fly up to Namibia and Zambia and Botswana and everything. So he said, okay, great. So got on the phone, civil aviation, got a hold of everybody and got all the permissions and stuff. And off we went. And, um, you know, the crossing the borders, the, um, passports, all the customs, immigration stuff. We all figured all these things out and ways in which to do it, you know. Mm. And we did the trip and we came back. And um, there was somewhere along there that some radio got hold of Alan. Okay. Some radio station in the east of the country got hold of Alan. And um, now this idea of flying around the world that started brewing now already, in my mind, before I'd even done the Mozambique trip. <laughs> it okay. was, um, and, um, but I left it aside there. And then um, on when this radio station got hold of Alan, I was listening to the conversation. And uh, the one thing that stood out, because we, we never thought about it, is when the guy asked you, why are you doing this? It kind of like it was a little bit of a pause there. Didn't like, have an answer. No, <laughs> it's like, because this is the shit we do. This because of what we like doing. There's whatever, you know. Yeah. We didn't have a clear answer. And I remember Alan sort of like stopping a second there and gathering his thoughts before he answered and stuff. And I, I, I somehow that, uh, I found that amusing, you know. And I thought like, yes, you need to have like a, big goal and say mm. this is what we're doing and why and when that uh, when he put the phone down and that conversation ended I said what was that about uh, you know why you know <laughs> and uh, yeah and we had a little chat and I said okay Alan look I must tell you that in the back of my mind I've been brewing with this idea mm. of actually flying around the world and he looked at me and he said Phew. You know, because now I don't know where we were. We were like up in Botswana somewhere, you know, out in the mm. middle of nowhere. Um, and he said, wow. And he says, oh. we sat down with a map and he said, well, if we do this and then we do that. And so the thing became possible, you know, just taking mm. all these little, taking a map and drawing lines and stuff like that. So him and I got into this thing and uh, we came back and thought it out for a little bit and took about two, three months. And we said, right, we're going to do it. Okay. And then I said to him, um, okay, when are we going to do this? But, and we eventually set a date. Mm -hmm. And that date was like so, um, it kind of made the commitment, put the, the you know. And how uh, far in advance did you set the date? Like two or three years? Uh, no, it was just more than three years. Okay. Um, Is that so, how you, long it, you thought it took to plan it? Or was there lots of I other need things to, as well? I need to rewind a little bit on, the, on, on my personal side is that, um, you know, I'd obviously had a daughter and got married and all that sort of stuff and divorce was ripe and ready. And like, okay. <laughs> you know, so all these kind of things. But the, the important part was that um, business was going exceptionally well. Okay. And I was 
moving forward like a loose cannon like I'd been all the time. But the problem with that is that everything grew so fast and mm. I was getting beyond my level of competence. And okay. I recognized this. And, you know, a few people had pointed out, be careful. You know, this is statistically your line of business goes bankrupt, you know, quite quickly, easily, this, that, and the next, a whole lot of things. And I looked at this and I thought, you know, I want to get out of this business and I try to get out of the business mm -hmm. and move more into property investment than okay. actually development. Um, and the more you try to get out, the more another opportunity gets placed in front of you. And there's this, this, this hamster wheel that goes on <laughs> and then the more people you're employing and then the more money you're borrowing and then, you know, mm. you, every, the dependencies start around you, um, everybody needing and wanting. And then that became like, undue pressure mm. and I looked at that and I thought uh -uh, I'm the one who's doing everything everybody's hanging on uh, this is not a good thing I need to change tack so I was trying to change tack but not able to because okay. of the pressure and the incentives and all that sort of stuff and part of me saying to Alan we're going on this microlight trip on that date was me figuring out the only way I'm going to get out of the, off this hamster wheel and come to some sanity because the stress is everything was going and I was becoming an angry monster like one does. And the only way was for me to get out of the, out of the country because mm. it just, it was just too much, right? yeah. too fast, too big. And, um, that was part of the thinking, right? We're going. And I said, Alan, we're going. He didn't have too much money. I said, I've, I'll make the money. I'll do it. I'll get okay. us there. And, um, yeah, so we set the date and that was fundamental. That's and important. now to, and now to make this thing happen, mm. you know, it's not like you pop down to the shop and buy a book on how to fly a microlight <laughs> around the world. You <laughs> to know. write the book first. <laughs> yeah. It's like initiative was everything eh? and yeah. you had to make it up. And, but there's uh, a lot of importance on setting the dates because if, firstly, three years away is a, is a long way, a long time. I mean, most people would, would recognize that three years is long. doesn't matter if there's a big project or not. It's so, like, how do you start working towards it? But to set a date is important because now everything kind of hinges on that. And you can, you can backpedal a lot of processes that require six months from that date and one year. And, yeah. But it also fundamentally it, it anchors you into to doing something. That's the first thing. Because yeah. we're going to fly around the world in 2026. It's 20 not the same as on the 21st of March, we depart. Yeah. It's not the same. You've no. you got to choose a date and say, right, yeah. this is when we take action. Yeah. Um, so there was research building up to this. And eventually when we took the date, uh, and yes, you are 100% right that that date is fundamental. But I've seen people set dates and still not do it. Yeah. And then I turn around, my sort of line on that is... You know, if you let yourself down, you're a pretty weak person. If you can't set a date and stick to it, then yeah. measure yourself for what type of person you are. And excuses, well, what's the difference between a winner or a loser is an excuse. So if you're coming with excuses and you're not getting it done, yeah. just step aside. <laughs> you know, go, <laughs> let go, the doer come past. <laughs> let, let the real, rest of the real world get past. <laughs> you're just standing in the way. I would imagine that that, that time period, I mean, you, you had lots of stresses besides this trip. But if you just talk about the, the planning of the trip, that's, that's quite a big thing because you were the first to fly a microlight around the world. Um, we weren't the first. There was somebody who had done it a few years before, but with the help of the a British guy, with the help of the army and the this and the that and okay. piles of money and all that sort of stuff. So um, he'd, he'd made it and he'd made it just around the world, but we weren't going around the world. <laughs> we were going to 
every continent in the world, which included Australia. We were going to be the um, the um, smallest aircraft to have flown the longest distance around the world. Okay, <laughs> we that, were going the for the record is. books. Okay, yeah, yeah, we were going big. Um, I think that when we first set the route together, we were at about 80,000 kilometers. Sure. And during the trip, we were starting to aim to hit 100,000 kilometers. Um, yes. And, you know, so we were going like That's proper. quite gutsy stuff. Yeah. But this, if I look back on it and I think of the way we spoke to each other and the mm. way we thought was like a 100% commitment. You know, this wasn't bullshit talk. This was like, this is what we were doing. Yeah. And it, the intensity with which we got into it and committed. And I mean, imagine telling people like we, like you say, we're having this conversation in the pub. Imagine talking to people in the pub saying, I'm going to fly a microlight around the world. Everybody is just looks at you as an absolute, you're yeah. a bullshitter and you yeah. this and you that. And they looked at you with such skepticism, can never be done and this and that. And all mm -hmm. There was so much of it. But you were so intense on what you were doing and so focused on it, you actually didn't hear it. You actually didn't know that people were saying that. <laughs> it was like this oblivious world going on, mm. <laughs> you know, this world you weren't even aware of. Um, but that was how intense and how, like, uh, deeply we were into this. Um, and I was always telling people how it's going to be and what's going to do and how it's going to do. And, you know, with these things, you, it's all about the energy because mm. – uh, organizing something like that, I would say more than 90% of the energy and effort that went into it came to nothing. You maybe you're lucky if 5% of it uh, actually it's just like materialized. You, you, you panic about things that don't exist, that kind of thing. Uh, not only panic. To? Now you got to get, how do you get permissions? Who do you get permission? How are you going to do this? you got like in amount of countries. Mm. You can't go paying some company to do it all for you. There just aren't the funds. There isn't yeah. the means. There. And how are we going to land? And how do you find out these runways that aren't registered aren't on any map anywhere? Mm. You know, and now, you know, you start doing a huge amount and then, you start thinking, okay, I want to go down the avenue of sponsorship and this and that. And then you start putting in energy into that. And then you're doing uh, yeah. a million things. Yeah. You've got about uh, 10 facets that you've got to manage. And the amount of effort you put into it, following up on sponsorship and this and that, or the next thing, putting proposals together and all that kind of stuff, the amount of effort you put in and nothing comes of it. You just got to expect that is reality. If yeah. you're not putting in 95% effort to get the 5%, you ain't going to get 5%. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just, that's the reality of life. It's the, the energy and the effort you put in has got to be exponential in comparison to the results you expect. And what I gathered from reading your book was that you're, uh, you're, you were the sort of more ops guy and, and putting it all together. Was there sort of a burden of responsibility on you or did you and Alan work quite closely in the preparation? There was a natural sort of uh, way things flowed because he had certain strengths and I had certain strengths. Um, you know, because of the business background, I had the whole organizational sort of mm. a structured sort of manner of dealing with things and people that I could employ and tap into to um, do certain things. Um, so there was that side of things. But then on Alan's side, he was extremely um, good at um, the technical side on stuff, you know, and he built the two microlights himself with oh, his wow, own okay. two hands. So um, he was doing a lot of that side of it. We were, as a team, we were fantastic. 
you know, we couldn't, balance, we yeah. couldn't do without each other. Mm. And even when it came to simple things like meteorology, like we were flying across certain places. I remember in, the, in Australia flying, we were above the clouds, you know, 9,000 and something feet going off to land somewhere out. And it was a long flight. And then we I had a map board on my leg and I could see we were crossing over some mountains. And um, we were flying along beautiful, smooth air and everything. And um, then slowly the microlights started descending and I started accelerating and it kept descending until I was full throttle and it was still going down. But from the hang gliding, I knew exactly what that was. I thought, oh, shit, we're going over these mountains. There's wave going yeah. on here. And, you know, just keep going. It's going to lift. And then it mm. did lift. And then Alan came in behind. Uh, you know, about a minute, two minutes behind. And then he started coming over the radio panicking, like, ah, oh, shit, I'm going down this, that, you know. And I was, the uh, one thing that surprised me is how quickly he turned to panic. Yeah, that was mm. like the first time I'd ever seen, heard this in him, and it kind of shocked me. And um, I said to him, don't worry, it's wave, just keep going. You're going to, you mm. in the sinking air, it's going to lift. And he kept going, and we got into that, into the lift, and everything was fine. We carried on flying. But that was like, a time where you saw the the hang gliding experience mm. play a big role. Um, but then there were other times where his technical experience played a massive role in saving our bacons, you know, with the motors and this and that and the next thing. And he was very, very good on, on certain aspects. And then I took up roles on the other side on organizing, talking to people and this, that and the next thing. But okay. then when it came to the sort of um, marketing or let's say the face, you know, if somebody was going to be on television, pff, Alan, you're on. Oh, really? <laughs> going there. Yeah, I just, it was okay. my my thing. Uh, and he was such a good people's person. He was a okay. lovely guy. Okay. So he was more apt at it than I was. So that worked well. So you get to the, you, I mean, you you say you're a nice combination. is more technical, you're organizing. He's the people's person in the front and you're kind of the back end. I want to fast forward to that sort of window where you're in the last couple of weeks uh, and that's a, you know, things always come together at the last minute. If it wasn't for the last five minutes, things wouldn't get done. Are you quite uh, fastidious on the fact that we're leaving on the that date and that date comes and we go? Totally. Okay. That so, was casting concrete. All right. And and you, uh, I mean, just tell me about the excitement of those those last hours or last day or two where you, you know, it's coming and obviously there's a bit of panic with packing and do we have that visa application? Is it ready? But just your emotional experience and your excitement and it was, your conversation with Alan. Yeah, the um, you know to get even close to that point, we'd already made major commitments. I'd made major commitments on the ba on the business side and family side, and my daughter and all that sort of stuff. And he'd made commitments on his side in selling and abandoning everything, and he basically had a suitcase. You know, so there were a lot of changes that went on to the, getting to the point of, of leaving. And then when it gets to the point of leaving, the, the more you it looks like this thing is actually happening, the more people get drawn to it. Mm. And then you have the problem of just, whoa, 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 steady, keep, stand by, stand by. And then everything looks lovely. I'd love to do that. And this filming guy <laughs> wants to give us a camera and this guy yeah. and that, you know, and then it starts like getting overboard. And we just had to cut it down to this is what we need, the basics of what we need, and this is what we must have in place and mm -hmm. and go from there. And um it, it, it does become quite stressful and, um, you know, it's just stuff you've got to manage. And we would go out and we'd fly a little bit and try this and camp out there and do this. And I'd say by the time we got going, 
We were probably about 80, maybe 90% uh, where we wanted to be. There okay. were the little loose ends that weren't quite there. But it's it's inevitable in everything. You're never sure. going to be 100%. Um, and I must say that, yeah, Alan then moved from Port Elizabeth and came to stay with me in Cape Town. So yeah, the two of us are staying in this little cottage and I think like, shit, this is like we're doing this. <laughs> this is no turning back now. <laughs> um, and uh, it was great. And I think the two of us being together, I think it was about a month before, just more than a month before we came down and stayed. The two of us being together did, uh, you know, stimulate and keep us motivated. Not keep us motivated. It was more like... Yeah, uh, you know, each other it was it yeah. was like real. This is the we're doing this, mm. and um, I'd say the day uh, the day we were taking off was quite a big thing uh, because sure. now you're playing with weather as well. Mm. You can you're setting dates and weather will it play along, won't it, and all that sort of stuff. So there there's stuff around there that was a bit stressful and all that sort of stuff. So the build-up to leaving, and a lot of people came out. When I say a lot of people, a few hundred people came mm. out to um, to Cape Town International to see us off, and the TVs were there, the TV channels and stuff were there. So it was uh, kind of like daunting and overwhelming, but at the same time, our, I'd say 80% of our brains were locked into uh, the process. The mission, yeah. This is what we're doing, and we're going to take off, and this is the frequency, and this, we're gonna, you know, all that sort of stuff. It was there. Mm. And then I, I'd say when we took off, got off the ground, there was something, there was a switch that went on there that we are on our way. Project, yeah, project started, now we're on, we're the on our way, yeah. Well, and we often talk about, you know, in the airline game as well, or in general, in flying game, you can have all the stress and the nonsense of load shedding and taxis on the highway and whatever, the Rand dollar, but as soon as you get airborne and the wheels fold away, you know, life's good. You know, you're climbing up above the clouds and you don't worry about the load shedding. And th- there's a there's a different, there's a different, like you said, different gear kicks in and you're now in flying mode and, and it's beauty and wonder and mission and, you know, the next frequency, the task. I think what it is is that um, you don't have other options now. Yeah. You've you got you the one off. thing to do and that's you've got no other option. You can't do anything else and da, 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 and everything and everyone around you will understand. So it's kind of, I think that's the feeling of freedom you get is that you're doing this thing and everybody understands nothing else can happen. <laughs> you uh, can't phone. <laughs> but there's, I just need to just track back a little bit. Um, in the whole organizing and getting sponsorship and everything, we kind of learned a few things and I'd, um, I'd started formulating this little plan as to you know mm. the, the why you're doing it um, and we put together this thing whereby we were doing it for several reasons okay, okay. Um, one of the reasons were that we were taking off um, exactly a hundred years since the Wright brothers took off so that was our mm thing is we're celebrating the centenary of aviation as we're going around the world. And then the next thing was it was a cel- uh, it was 10, ten years. years since Nelson Mandela took over. And so we were sub- celebrating the 10 years of um, the freedom of South Africa and all that sort of stuff. And um, we were also 
we got the children, Red Cross Children's Hospital, they came on board. They didn't want us to collect money for them. They wanted the publicity so that when they go to large companies, they're well known, so they get okay. a larger portion of the donations. So they weren't asking us for money, to collect money, it was more for the publicity. And, um, and then the other thing was simply get out there and do what you enjoy doing. But now each one of these things played a huge fundamental role. In fact, without them, we would have failed totally. Okay, say and, more about that. And um, the, the, the first one was the centenary of aviation. So as we were flying along, mm-hmm. all aviation clubs and all that sort of stuff, have you heard these guys? And hey, we must get them to the club. So you ah. connected with aviation circles as you went around the world. That's so nice. that had a very important role to play in connecting Mm. with people Um, and the other part was with the Nelson Mandela um, celebrations Um, I'd got hold of the um, uh, you know the embassy South African embassies and foreign affairs and I got hold of foreign affairs here before we left I said look we're doing this and you know we may it's celebration of Nelson Mandela's um, taking over and all that and they absolutely loved the idea so we got involved with foreign affairs from the outset okay and they opened doors like that one with Yemen I could just turn around to South African embassy uh, and I'd said quite clearly up front, I said, we're going to need your help. And they came on board knowing That's you know, we job, were, yeah. we, our agendas were very clear. Mm. I wasn't trying to schmooze and, yeah. and say, be lovely if we could, you know, and them not knowing what's the background. Um, and they were ready. So when I got hold of the South African embassy to help out with Yemen, it was boom, boom, done. Nice. And it was sorted. And um, so we were moving around in certain places. We had challenges that turned to them and things like that. But it, was, it didn't happen too often, mm. but they were ready. And like getting permission into China, like, jeez, they don't let any aviation in there. Yeah. <laughs> general aviation. They don't even have general yeah. aviation. They've just got Air Force and airline zero yeah. after that. Um, and occasionally they would let a few privates around the coast but okay. we were asking to go straight through mainland China. And uh, we just got hold of the South African embassy. And in Vietnam, we hung out with them at Hanoi. And they negotiated it. And we got permission to go into China and straight through China. So it was like a first. And yeah. there's something um, about the... Uh, I'll tell you this. I've got a Portuguese passport and I've got a South African passport. Mm-hmm. But when I'm out there doing stuff, I want the South African passport. Oh, really? And the reason is that the South African embassies have got this, like, uh, ability to think laterally. They haven't got these strict rules and Mm. this little box that they are accustomed to functioning in, you know, and the Mm. form for this and a form. they're They're pretty sharp. They're pretty good at working around things. And I think it's what I call the developing world's yeah. uh, lateral thinking. You know, you don't survive <laughs> in the developing world if you're not lateral thinking. Yeah, you need and, to. Yeah, Because yeah. there's and, no water in a few hours. So what yeah. are you going to do about it? Yeah. And if, if shit goes down, if I've had an accident somewhere in the middle of some desert in Algeria or something, I'm going to get a hold of South African embassy. <laughs> They're the ones I want to deal with because mm. they, um, they've got it. Um, okay. So there's that, uh, that side to, And they were fantastic the whole way around. And the Red Cross Children's Hospital also played a role in that. In a few places we came in contact with some 
um, really wealthy people and organizations and all the rest that wanted to be in, mm. involved and stuff. And I would just put them together, you know, and they would, um, uh, you know, they would donate and do all that sort of stuff. But we got involved, we got met up with some guys, mega wealthy guys in aviation who got, you know, taken back by all of this and they opened doors for us and made things happen. It was just really, so it's really nice. nice. You make a good point then to connect to a mission, but a mission that's bigger than you. Like, I mean, totally. you could have a mission that I want to save 100 rhinos or whatever, but a yeah. mission that's bigger than you yeah. that unites other people to buy into that mission really yeah, but I've got to tell you that it's got to be real. Yeah. Uh, number yeah, yeah. one, it's got to be real. And number two, it's got to be symbiotic. You know, don't take on somebody because it's got a feely, touchy thing. If they're not mm. adding value, it's not going to It's going to mm. be sustainable. Yeah. And uh, what value can you add to them and what value can they add to you? Mm. And if you can get that practical side of things, then it works extremely well. Yeah. Now, of course, the, I mean, the whole thing was not trouble-free. And I want to zoom in on, on the, the major tragedy that you had uh, if we can take the opportunity to just discuss. So, I mean, you've mentioned a few times China being a difficult place to get into in the first place. There's no real GA there, but you do manage to get in there. But uh, obviously you've had ups and downs with your journey. You've, by the time you hit China, you had about 40,000 Ks traveled already. Yeah, something, something like that. Yeah. I mean, you've been on the road a long time. You know yeah. each other well. So... Um, I think you, uh, to briefly mention some of it, went up Africa as far up into Asia as Nepal and then down the Indonesian islands to Australia and around the east side of Australia and all the way up, uh, back up. And why I bring that up is because you must understand how much experience went mm. into this. You know, the, the experience we were uh, developing as we were going along, you know, we were doing yeah. some major flights, some big stuff. Um, and, you know, like world firsts and stuff like that. Simple one is like when we flew from East Timor, um, from Delhi to Darwin in Australia, you go across that ocean. I mean, that's huge distance. I think coast to coast is over 650 kilometers. And you're going to, you plan to sit out there for 12 to 14 hours in the ocean, you know, and if that engine stops, I guess it's going to change your day, if not your life, you know, it's going to be hectic. So the I was, at, I was at Maritime Patrols at 35 Squadron and Ace to Plot on the deck. And sometimes when we went to 200 miles out with two turbine engines, we're like, how far out here? So yeah, I can just, I mean, I'm feeling a little bit nervous just you saying it. You uh, know. And now you said there in this little microlight, this umbrella with a lawnmower motor behind you. you know, it's kind of like daunting. Um, so that, those, kind of, those kind of things, are the, when I first heard about the trip years and years and years ago, just these large expanses of crossings of water, uh, I thought that's going to be your most hectic uh, part uh, of the journey. Water and deserts and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's really. But uh, the point I'm trying to make is how much we had been building up, mm. and mm -hmm. how much um, we become pretty good at what we were doing, and we were, became extremely confident about mm. what we were doing, and we had it. We really, really were doing something incredible and amazing and big distances. I mean, flying from Cape Town all the way up to Asia and down to Australia. I mean, that is like big nobody's ever been crazy enough to do it so, um and and we're doing like amazing things out in the oceans in storms you know crossing mm. the islands and those thunderstorms and you know we just plug right through it you know and keep going bouncing up and down like ping pong balls but just keep it in <laughs> general direction and off mm. you go um and i think that whole build-up was quite had a fundamental sort of uh, impact mm -hmm. on things when it came to China and the actual incident with Alan is that um, 
we'd built up our confidence uh, like to such a huge level. Yeah. And I think if we weren't that uh, that level of experience and confidence, it might have been a better thing. Might have um, been better. Mm, because um, on the day that we were going to take off, um, we looked at the Met report and we could see cloud and a bit of a storm in our paths. But you know, to us, that's nothing, man. I mean, we, how storms, much yeah. of that haven't we done? It's just like... Um, and uh, you know, so if we ventured into it, very knowing clearly what was lying ahead, and then also what was lying on the other side of it, was perfect conditions and stuff like that. And um, yeah, we took off and climbed up high in the most perfect, perfect conditions. You know, it was clouded underneath us; we couldn't see ground and things like that. But the temperature was warm up there. We were sitting at ten, twelve thousand feet, and. Um, the temperatures were warm, unusual for that mm. sort of levels. And um, everything was great. A little bit of a tailwind, tra-la-la, going great. And um, I said to Alan, you know, I'm going to ask them to route us to the next destination, which is Wuhan, because we're doing so well, we can make that thing in no time. Um, so we were heading for Changsha, and then I asked them for clearance to go to Wuhan. They go to Beijing because of China. Everything's going to be permission for everything. You know? yeah. um, so they get a hold of Beijing, and Beijing comes along, and um, there was a bit of a question mark there. Why? And then I turned around and I said, conditions are perfect, and we can't land at uh, Changsha. And they said, well, you must turn back. And I said, I don't have – we did. But I turned around and bullied them because now I remember yeah. your whole modus operandi is bullying these authorities into doing, letting you do things. And I turned around to them and I said, "I don't. We don't have enough uh, fuel to make it back." Um, that was just me bullying them. It wasn't yeah, the, yeah. the fact. And um, so they eventually came back and said, "Yes, you got permission to go to Wuhan." And I thought, "Yes, I beat them again." <laughs> you know, you get it. And um, yeah, somewhere along the line, we have to, we had to change fuel. You've got fuel and tanks on the back seat, and it uh, goes through to the um, main tank. But you got to just open a tap and things. And um, Alan had looked down, and he had goggles on his helmet. He had a, wore a full face motorbike helmet, mm-hmm. and he put the goggles up above and looked down, and the goggles had blown off his helmet. And he came back to me and he said, oh, shit, the goggles blown off, went through the prop and this and his mic lights all okay. And, you know, so we had this little discussion and um, I said to him, well, let's go down and land, you know. Get some more goggles. Uh, you know, and they, I oh, know they're going to cancel our authority and all that because, remember, it was a mission and it was yeah. really, and they being very difficult. So I said to him, no, don't worry about that. It's just another fight, you know, I'm in. I'll, mm-hmm. you know, it's my thing. <laughs> and... Um, Oh, no, 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 no. I said, Alan, just like, come on, let's do land. He said, no, 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 no. And I said, okay, well, you take over the flight then. In other words, you take control. You decide whether we go down or whatever it is. We had these procedures within us that sure. we did. And so um, you take over the flight and uh, I'll follow. And um, then he came back a short while and I said, no, he's made a plan. And I said, yeah, whatever. You know, I didn't think much of it. And uh, we carried on flying. And then we went into the storm, which was, once again, no big deal. I could see him down you below me. You didn't have me. weather radar, eh? No. A storm scope or nothing basic, no, 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 nothing no, no, at all. No, you no, just, no. there's a storm and we're going to hit it. You got a radar, a radio, yeah. and a basic transponder, yeah. and that's it. Okay. Um, 
And uh, we could see the cloud getting thicker and this mm-hmm. and that and the next thing and the different layers and stuff. So, um, and it was exactly as uh, the Met Office had forecast and stuff. And um, I looked down at Alan, who was probably about 100 feet below, just on the left-hand side and stuff. And then I called him up and I you know, just let him know where I am. We would do this quite regularly, part of yeah. procedures, because I know he can't see me because of his wing above. Him. Sure. So I said, I'm uh, about 100 feet below you um, on your three o'clock and all fine. I said, okay, cool. And we carried on. I said, okay, we're going to lose sight and we go into it. And um, it just all of a sudden started raining horrendously like mm-hmm. we'd never, ever uh, had before. This was like, tennis ball kind of drops it was massive and um it starts hitting you it's like riding a motorbike in the rain Mm. but big drops it starts hitting you and bashing your helmet and all this sort of stuff it was really bad and i was veering off a bit to the one side and then the other side and overcorrecting, and things were like wow getting hectic and then suddenly alan came on the radio screaming he's lost his wing he's falling he's falling and i'm like what you know it's just it blows your brain because you're in such a heightened level of fear and stress Mm. that you it just takes something like that for you to snap and you mm. go off. And I just like, what the hell? And then I'm trying to call him and then he's mayday calls and oh, what are you doing? You know, and all this sort of stuff. And then when him saying that he's lost his wing and he's falling and all this sort of stuff, then it hit me and um, this physical stuff that goes on in your body. And yeah. I only found out afterwards is like, um, for example, I landed being disorientated and going into a bit of a spiral, going down, and I wanted to see what's happening with Alan and all this sort of stuff. Um, and in this process, what happens is you get a huge amount of adrenaline input into your body, mm-hmm. which affects you physically. And I even remember my eyes, the tunnel vision in your eyes, going into this tube sort of thing, and um, this smell in the back of your nose and mouth, and just that overload of adrenaline. So everything went wild. Yeah. Physically, I just uh, I went to extremely wild. Now you've got him screaming on the radio that he's dying, he's falling, and all this sort of stuff, and it just sends you off the charts and stuff. But just through, I'd say, more luck than anything else, I managed to keep it together. And I thought if his wing is broken, mine is going to break and all this sort of stuff. And I just managed to keep it together and enough and um, made it out the other side of this thing. It was literally not even five minutes, three, four minutes. uh, Yeah, but it went bad fast and and radical. And, uh, you know, three, four minutes when things are falling apart is a long time. Yeah. And I came out of the other side, perfect weather, perfect everything, and just settled down and I took a gather myself and I'd orientated and get heading and all this sort of stuff. Um, in the meantime, nothing from Alan, you know, all mm. gone. Um, and I had another two hours to fly to get to Wuhan. That's hectic. Oh, man. And by this stage, I was convinced that Alan had, was, he had died, you know, because he's lost his wing and he's mm. fallen out the sky and like and there's structural failure and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And you um, two hours left to, <coughs> two hours to fly go. and sit with your Yeah, and thoughts. we had, we had uh, uh, part of the procedures were um, if something happens to one, the other one must not try and land. He must go to the nearest, safest place to land Guess and so. then try and help. Because with a microlight, you can land anywhere. Mm. Uh, rugby field or 
uh, anything on a road or something like that. So the big thing is don't do that because that's you make a mistake and now we've got two mm. uh, issues. Um, so I made it to Wuhan and tried to get hold of the authority. Oh, well, the authority has got a hold of me very quickly. <laughs> there it was all. And, um, yeah, they were just not telling me anything. They had sent out parties of 1,000 people to search for Alan, and that sounds outrageous, but in, if you've been to China, you'll know that's quite the norm. Um, and this and that, and this went on and on and on. But it, it was just, I mean, my head was just like crazy, you know, is mm -hmm. he alive, isn't he alive, and all this sort of stuff. And then eventually at 8 o'clock at night, the South African embassy got hold of me and said, look, they found his body and this and that and the next thing. And that mm. was that was like, oof, you know, you, you just lose mm. all faculties, you know. It just it goes crazy. And, you know, the thing is that if we weren't so strong and we weren't so confident, we would have done things vastly different. And I don't think we would go to that, that level. It's mm. just that complacency that kind of builds up and we pushed it too hard. And it just takes that what we were doing was not out of the ordinary for what we had been doing. Yeah. It was, we were quite capable, everything, we'd done it so many times, well proven and all that sort of thing. But it just takes that one anomaly, that one straw to break the camel's back. And that one anomaly was his goggles. But that's also, I was going to ask you earlier, I mean, how many times did you transfer fuel in the 40,000 Ks? And how did this goggles fall off this day? Exactly. In this, I mean, storm, I, in this, be, in this landscape. Doing exactly the same, exactly the same procedures, exactly the same everything. For how long? A huge, mm. huge, huge amount of time and, and hours and stuff like that. And mm. now it must, uh, just one little thing. But, you know, the, the point being that Swiss cheese is don't, yeah, yeah. don't go to the limits. Doesn't matter what it is. Even if you're riding a motorbike, don't ride it fast. Step back. Even mm. if any instinct in you is telling you you can go faster, don't. Yeah. Stay, just, just give yourself that gap. Just give yourself that little room for a margin of error. Mm. Um, because if, you, if you're operating on the limit, you'll find out where the limit is. Mm. <laughs> and it's going to be that little thing that you never, ever, ever would have dreamt of that yeah. comes and breaks the camel's back. Yeah. And then that's what happened. And there were a few things that went on there um, that was like, uh, anyhow, with time I managed to understand and realize what went on and stuff like that. And Essentially, what had gone on is um, because he didn't have his goggles on and because of the heavy rain, he couldn't see even his instruments. Mm. And what happens with the brain is it relies on your ears and your eyes for balance and orientation, shut both down and your brain screams and turns to panic. And mm. you in that high level of stress and fear, there's no rational thinking mm. possible and you just completely freak out. And that's what he did. Disorientated and the feelings of falling and all that sort of stuff were, were all there. But it turns out the Chinese authorities were insisting with me that he didn't crash. Oh. And then I was saying like, okay, well, what do you mean he didn't crash? And it was, you know, the language was challenged. So you couldn't, I couldn't mm. get a clear understanding. But with time, I figured this out and... They say they were tracking him on radar and he flew to that river to land in the river. Oh. And it took time to like accept that, yeah, that's what he was doing. And I know exactly why he was doing it. It was a muddy river, it made it look like a road or something. You said it was, it was a, a massive river, yeah. But I know exactly why he did it. In our preparation, part of the 95% that was useless, um, Alan had done quite a lot of research into 
um, ditching in the sea mm. and survival and all the equipment and all that sort of stuff. And he'd uh, analyzed all the accidents reports and everything, and it turned out that light aircraft had uh, more success in landing in um, trees than landing oh. in water. That's how far he had gone mm-hmm. into all of this. And the only thing we never agreed with um, uh, with the procedures was um, ditching in the sea. And he had said that he will jump out and I, because you could land up crashing and tangled in the wreckage mm-hmm. and stuff. And I said to him, no, I'll stay in because, and I referred him to a friend in, in Port Elizabeth who'd landed in the sea three times He'd and walked jump. away, every, you know, just, it was no problem at all. Remember the microlight flies very slowly. You can bring mm. it down to like 40 kilometers, like fly, uh, falling off a bicycle. So, mm. And I said to Alan that I will stay in the microlight and he said he would jump. Um, so that was what we knew. And what he did was he flew to the river and just before he got the, to the river, he jumped. And he mistimed it. And because of it, he hit the water too hard, broke seven ribs and couldn't swim. Mm. And that at the end was what, how it all unfolded, which was kind of a shocking realization. Um, but this took time to, to work mm. out. Um, but it was like, oh, man, you know, how could, you, how could things go so wrong so yeah. badly after you you really knew what you were doing and you were more than capable of doing it and all that sort of stuff. But complacency and just uh, mm. pushing the limits, you got a recipe for disaster. But then the, the, the sort of next bit of time, you know, a couple of days, weeks, it's it's not an easy time anyway. Like even if you're just sitting at home, it's a tough time losing a friend. But now you're on this adventure, you are in the far end of the world you're on your own now. I mean, yeah. the thought process there, but do I just pack it in? Do I carry on? Like, oh, look, the the first thinking was definitely packing it in. You can't think out mm. it. Oh, there's no way so it's going to carry on going. But um, and all the things you mentioned is is very relevant. Um, you've obviously been there, too, but is that being in places like China where they don't even speak English? I mean, yeah. I was in How this remote place yeah. where they hadn't seen Europeans. The kids hadn't seen Europeans, you know, and they're coming to touch the hair on your arms and stuff like that because you're so weird. Mm. Um, and, you know, being in that strange environment and dealing with stuff like that and, oh, man, it was, and the media was like quite on it, onto it and all that sort of thing. It was it was really tough. And Alan's mom flew out um you know, to there was a cremation, and she brought his ashes back and stuff. And there was something that went on, and I can't put my finger on it. But we had this uh, website going, and people mm. were posting messages, and people were saying, "Carry on, carry on." And I thought, you know, these sick puppies—they don't understand yeah, don't <laughs> what this is all about. This is not a reality show on TV. This is a real, you know. And it's like the strange place I was in, and they're sitting in the comfort of their own home, and you know, it's like where they're coming from, but. Somewhere in between Alan's mom arriving and talking to her and and these kind of little weird messages coming through, there's something that just went on that made me just think on the other side. Mm. And then I started thinking about it and saying to Alan's mom, you know, that I just thought, you know, you can't leave it here. This is just like, 
you know, Alan's just going to be forgotten in some civil yeah. aviation file in China and everyone's going to like be laughing or whatever. Not really what people think, but it's just like didn't feel right. It was just Doesn't wrong. do it justice, yeah. And there was a certain cowardness that went with it. I thought if I back out now, you know, and mm. like, uh, there was something that didn't gel. And I spoke to his mom about it and I said to her, how does she feel if I carried on? And she said, look, there's no ways I can encourage you to do that. My son's just died doing this and all. So, but whatever, you know, you choose to do what you want. Just you have my blessings, whatever okay. way you well, want. Well, that's you know. important. And, um, and I just took that once again as a note that this is what's got to go. It's not, it's not actually my choice. Mm. It's, this is what's got to unfold. And um, I, I just turned to that. I thought I have to carry on. I mean, for Alan not to be forgotten and for a whole lot of reasons relating to what we have done and where we're at and we can't just give up. Mm. Um, and the Chinese authorities wouldn't let me continue and I tried. I even got onto the runway and <laughs> trying to be pushy and stuff and they wouldn't let it happen. And it was, I was, there was no way so I was going to get away with being cocky. South African, who's <laughs> not doesn't listen to rules, um, so I was forced to ship it over to San Francisco, okay, and then carried on from there. But I miss the Chinese authorities refused to let me fly because they said I was um, not mentally fit to fly. Something that I just kind of didn't listen. Thought, mm. ah, you know, really, and, you know, and I'd even written to them, and they said, "Lovely letter, well written, but you're not <laughs> okay to go." They had no concrete evidence yeah. to say that, but they know from aviation, this is yeah. a situation, you ain't going to be flying now. Um, anyhow, so I went off to San Francisco and carried on there, and there was things that happened that made me go, wow, there's something yeah. wrong. There's something very, very wrong. And what I've come to understand about those is that when you land up in these extreme trauma situations, accidents, why well, it might be a light little thing. It might be a little fender bender on the way to the airfield. You know, we bumped into the Things car. Things change, yeah. Don't fly. Because you don't know what impact that's had mm. on your brain. And you've only got one brain. It's not like you can compare and say, oh, no, this one's not working well. That one you've got <laughs> is the one that's, in your view, working well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but he's not. <laughs> um, and the, what I've come to understand about it is that your brain has got this survival mechanism that it uses. And what, you, what happens in these extreme trauma situations, the way I felt, is like part of your brain shuts down and like the emotional part that you can't deal with because you can't deal with it. The mm -hmm. brain can't cope with it. And it leaves you enough operating system to feed yourself and to orientate yourself and go and do whatever basics, you need for yeah. survival. It leaves you with that. But the rest shuts down. And you don't know it's shut down. Mm. And um, there were things that went on which, yeah. So it's every now and then something would flash in and then I'd realize, shit, what's just happened? Mm -hmm. You know, so part of dealing with what was going on is the fact that my brain was half shut down. So it wasn't like I was dealing with something. I yeah. wasn't. It was just shut off. And... Um, when you get flying, the decisions you make has an impact on your movement and what's happening. And you can see clearly what's going on in somebody's mind just by the way the airplane's moving and what and it's missing, doing. You're missing key points. In uh, the total. Yeah. I mean, things that a student would never, ever yeah. miss. Suddenly it's like not there. Yeah. And I, I remember once I took out off some regional little uh, runway and I took off and just 
kept turning and turning and I was like, you meant to be right yeah. hand out, why are you going left hand out? I wasn't thinking at the time. And I went right across the front of a small aircraft. I remember looking at the aircraft as, he, as, he, as he turned quite violently to miss me. I looked at his nose cone and I thought, you know, it's lovely. Look how shiny that is. Lovely when, mm. you know, pilots look after the aircraft. That was my assessment of the situation. <laughs> check, yeah? and, sure. But you don't realize it straight away because yeah. you got that messed up brain that you use. So how do you snap out of that? Is it just time? or the Time. And then like further on down the line, I would think back, I think, you know, that was actually quite a dangerous situation. How did that happen? What did I do? Yeah. And then you know, why am I realizing it now? Why didn't I panic then? Mm. You know, things like fear. All fears shut down. Yeah. You don't feel scared. Yeah. And it's because that part of the brain is shut down because it can't cope. Surviving now. And um, so as I went on further and further, I got to realize, oh, there's something's not well here. And then... I started operating within very narrow limits and the regimental. Bring the smaller, yeah, yeah, the regimental. You do this. And I even made lists of things that I must do, the checks that I must do, and all the basic, basic stuff that is, mm -hmm. you know, second nature. Um, I started making lists and taking note of and keeping myself in that. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I carried on flying. I must say it was like extremely, extremely difficult to keep flying. But uh, there also comes a point where um, things start going very strange in your head and you start going beyond yourself. Mm -hmm. In other words, I started flying. I reached a point uh, later on where I started flying. It was quite clear that something was going to happen. But it didn't matter because this was about, it wasn't about me anymore. This was like... Would you say something's going to happen? Something bad's going to happen again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It could be next. Um and I just, like, it, there's something that went on in my head that it didn't matter. And you start going into this very abstract sort of zone mm. um, whereby, you know, life's journey is more, is a, you know, you just on it to yeah. do the journey. If this yeah. is where you're going to end, this is the journey, this is your journey and this is where you must end and stuff like that. It's a very strange place to go as a human being, you know, and it's part of basically, you know, losing your mind. Um, and there's somewhere along the line where I just realized this is my, uh, there's something, you know, it was I was losing my mind. I realized this is what's happening and it's getting worse. And where that came to a crux or got to extremely bad was when I, um, you know, I got to Europe and I flew across Europe. I did the States and all of that down south into Mexico and all that and then got into Europe and I was uh, crossing Europe and then now heading across the Mediterranean. So I was going to the Greek islands and heading out to Cyprus and out. And um, on the flight heading from Cyprus out across the ocean, there was something there that just snapped. I think it was a part of my brain that kicked back in and made me sort of analyze things and think like, you're definitely going to die. There's no, it wasn't a if or but or maybe. And I couldn't figure out, and there was this confusion that went on. And, and, ex, and then the fear started kicking in again now. And mm. now that faculty starts like challenging you and what you're doing and how you're doing it, why you're doing it and all this sort of stuff. And I came up with these thinking of everything being above yourself and all that sort of stuff more than what you and all that. 
And then flying across the desert, the Sahara Desert, it is a massive expense. Flying across yeah. the sea is one thing, but the desert is just like on another level. And you're out there in these extreme places and conditions. There's no roads, no nothing. You go down there, that's it. You know, no, there's no, you. there's yeah. no hope. Yeah. Um, and there's somewhere in that whole lot that I just, uh, what happened was I couldn't understand what I was thinking. And to try and explain that is in every thought you have, there were a series of thoughts that led up to it. Yeah. And you can normally retrace it. If somebody asks you, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, no, exactly, how yeah. did you get to that thinking? You can say, well, I thought of that and then this and then this and then that. Yeah. And this is how I get to this understanding. But when you have zero connection to any thought prior than the one that's in your head right now, you start thinking like, what am I thinking? Where did this come from? How do, and you don't know how your own brain is working. It is such a frightening thing, but the impact it has on you is also physical. You start hyperventilating because you, as you lose your mind in some patch, and it might last a few seconds or even a mm. minute, and you can't remember anything back. You literally can't remember how you, what are you doing in this thing? You know, where are you mm. flying? You can't understand why you, how do, how do you even get into the air? Yeah. You know, where am I? You know, all that sort of, when everything, you lose everything and you got to like try and figure out what's going on, you know, you know, you're in a bad way. And it is the most frightening thing you can ever imagine happening. And so you, as I say to you, physically, mm. you start hyperventilating, your heart is racing, you shaking, you screaming your head off. Sometimes I would uh, be screaming, not even knowing I'm screaming, and then realize, but why am I screaming? Mm. You know, and that's, you, you totally, totally lose your mind. And to be up in there flying under those circumstances, it's sure. just, and each time I'm realizing how bad things are, and I realized that just uh, the odds are against me. Eh? I'm not going to make it. And time is against me. Everything is against me. I'm falling apart. And But there was this little monster inside me would not let go. And I, there's, I kind of like it got so deep and intense. I was even, even thinking back on like the Holocaust and thinking how desperate those people must have been in those places and lost their minds. But there was still this little flame that stays mm. burning of hope of going. And that was it. I was just had this little flame inside of me that just said, that just kept me going. I don't know what it was, but it, 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 dying was a definite. That was, that was going to happen and it didn't matter. Um, and there's somewhere there I got in Eritrea, war-torn Eritrea, there's no food and stuff like that. I mean, they had made some special arrangement to get some fuel for me and stuff like that. So I could only eat what was like the guys went and picked out of the sea and stuff like that right there. Mm. And we landed having some pasta and mussels. And this thing, uh, the next day I was bad, but I still took off. I had to get out of Eritrea. It was too dangerous. And Food poisoning, kind of. Got sick. into Djibouti and I was manned down with food poisoning, but bad, really, really bad. And that put me in uh, in bed for like five days, hardly eating and all the rest. But in a way, it was a bit of a savior because I wasn't putting bit pressure of, on myself to fly, yeah. a bit of whatever. And I could get myself together in, a, in, in, in some form. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually when I got going, um, you know, I just got going and I knew time was against me. And by this stage, 
set everything aside, no permissions, no nothing. <laughs> I just head out and they tried to arrest me in Ethiopia and I got away with that shit. And then I'm landing and I thought, never mind immigration, never mind customs, never mind anything. I'm taking a straight line and I'm going. And I, because time was against me, I knew, I just set big distances. I'd, I'd fly in a day like twice as much as you'd normally fly, you know, so sure. I'd do two legs in a day and stuff like that. But the other thing that started happening is because I knew I was in this bad state, I didn't want anybody to know, which is also very typical syndrome. And you, may, you land up isolating yourself from other people. Mm. And the more you isolate from, from other people, the less you can relate to thinking and all that sort of stuff, the worse it makes you. Because you need multiple brains around you. Yeah, we yeah. social animals. Yeah. And we need that sort of social interaction to uh, maintain our sanity. But yeah, I was isolating myself. And then any posts I made or any messages I made was from, I would make it today stating that I was two, three days back. So I would say I was in Eritrea, where I was actually in Kenya. Okay. So there was this whole thing I was just trying to keep away from people and isolate and everything. And it got exponentially worse as I got closer and oh, wow. like into Mozambique the first time it started clicking like going a bit onto the let's say positive side was when I started going to Mozambique and getting to the places that I recognized and now I knew how to You're in the home stretch yeah now I knew how to get around and things but other things came into play because this fear factor starts coming into your head mm. and now you've got this battle and I would be flying like I flew across the Karoo and like 10 plus thousand feet to stay out of any turbulence. But the minute I felt any bump, I'd freak out. And like, you know, why? You know, it's like what you do every day now. You're suddenly mm. panicking about it. But I'd say that whole journey back was like, was impossible. And I landed in Cape Town. It was just an absolute roll of the dice that I came back alive. Um, <laughs> And it's very, very strange where your head can take you. Mm. It's a very, very But I wanted to mention strange. that earlier. So you're sitting for between, what, six and 12 hours yeah. on your own, yeah. in your head, in yeah. your thoughts. Yeah. And that's not really healthy for anybody. That's a disaster. Because we shouldn't be stuck in our own thoughts because you start ruminating and you go down this journey that starts, you know, hey, that's a nice view of the cloud and I wonder what clouds look like and clouds become the next thing and then the next thing you're talking about the... Never mind the fact that doing that anyway is, yeah. is probably not so healthy, but you coming on the back of some tough times that you've been through in recent weeks. Sure, I mm. mean, it must have been just just get home, get off this thing, get the journey done, take it off. And I don't think it was even a thought of get home. It was just this, what I have to do today, and this is going to be my last day, and I must go. So were you flying along thinking that this could be it? I'm just not thinking, knowing. Shit. And to take off under those into that mental state. Ooh. I mean, there are times I take off in tears and stuff, but it was, it's an absolutely strange and extreme place for the human mm. mind to go. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's not like I can, you know, very few people even understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's not a rational place, mm. not a rational thought. It really is the outer limits of losing your mind and... Uh, I just kept going and I had this thing every morning. I'd do my regimental sort of thing, do this, do that. Wouldn't ask why I'm taking off and all that sort of thing. I'd take off, I'd know where to go. And that's what I would do. I'd follow the GPS and I was just a machine. And then when you got back here, what was the sort of... It, it was a huge thing getting back because... Um, How long have you been away now? Is this about eight months or so? No, no, no. It was just over 11 months, closing on to a year now. 
Um, and uh, yeah, getting back was had another whole pile of things to do to deal with. And what it is is that, um, and this is a very common phenomena and the one of me going to that let's call it the death death zone is also a common phenomenator a phenomenon um and uh, they call it summit sickness and a lot of the guys on the mountains uh, actually kill themselves as opposed yes. to just dying and what it is is that you get into the zone where uh, in their case they might be oxygen, oxygen yeah. uh, uh, you know lack of oxygen or something like that but whatever it is it starts affecting the mind and the decision making process mine was trauma theirs was oxygen and all that and you get so obsessed with the, with the summit and you get so focused on it that nothing can turn you back mm. so guys are sitting up at 7,000 meters with the uh, brain that isn't quite uh, functioning, making decisions that normally they would never ever decide to do. And they, some of them could be climbing for years and then they decide, no, they're going. And they know the turnaround time, but no, we can make it. And they start doing the whole thing until they... Uh, sit until in the they, top and die. And sit there and, and die. It's, it's, a, it's a well-recorded sort of phenomena. Um, the other thing, the other people that also... Um, the, the me arriving and what happens afterwards is also typical of um, the build-up to events like let's say Olympic sports or mm. something like that, where the where they train for uh, four eight years, uh, the entire waking up every morning every day is with that purpose, and they run harder, they do whatever mm. they do harder and better, and build themselves up for that Olympic event, and then eventually when the event takes place, and it normally takes and the the let's say the plummet or the absolute fall apart happens either just at the event or just after the event and that's why you get these psych, um, psychologists and coaches around them to keep them pumped up mentally for the event so they go into it um, mm. mentally as strong as they can but straight afterwards they fall and what happens is why do they wake up the next morning where's the focus yeah, where's, where's the, the purpose? purpose everything falls apart and I arrive back and in the, for at least two weeks, I wouldn't be able to sleep because I'd wake up in the middle of the night sweating, screaming, shouting, not even knowing where I am in my own little cottage. I wouldn't even recognize where I am. And it's basically because I didn't have a purpose or a mission anymore. It's all just mm -hmm. gone. Suddenly from one day functioning at the most extreme to the death to the next day is being switched off. You're yeah. an absolute mess after that. And um, I got some advice from a um, therapist who actually trains the Olympians and all that um, yeah. for that uh, stuff. And what he told me is he explained to me what had gone on in my mind and how I'd lost my mind and these kind of traumas that went on. And he also said, look, the position you're in is very, very precarious and can impact the rest of your life. You need to know that. It is. Um, and he said, whatever you do, don't make any commitments longer than three months or six months because you're a mission-focused, driven individual, goal-driven individual. You are loose cannon right now with no goal, no mission, no everything. Your last five years of your life have been detected by this and it's been switched off. Now you need to find a purpose and you're going to latch onto anything and it's going to take you 10 years down the road to realize why the hell am I doing this? Mm. And you would have forgotten the circumstances under which you made the decisions. So... I avoided everything and it was a big, <laughs> big, big help because 
Almost. When you say avoid everything, did you just become a recluse? Or? No, 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 no. It was more, uh, I kept my business going while it was, there okay. was still some little development going on. I got everything set up and paid for and all that sort of stuff. And then I let them carry on with a little project and stuff. So there was still that going. But uh, what I didn't do is I didn't get sucked back into business. I now had the excuse to stay out and all the rest. And I stayed out of it. And also the the amazing life lessons I got out of these things is, and also that part where I stayed out of business and all that sort of stuff is, while I was flying the microlight, the trip, I was actually analyzing what I was, what I had been doing and all the rest. And when I came back, didn't get involved in business, started looking at all of this and you know what? I was putting in maybe 25% of the energy and I was earning 80% of the money. And I got to realize how stupid I was, how um, over en- too much energy and too much perfection, too much trying to grab everything, you know, just back off, just do a little this, a little that. And I started doing just like one little project because it got me out of bed and I'd have to go there and choose and decide and all that. Yeah. But just one little thing. And that's all I was doing. The rest of the business carry on their own, independent of me, I don't want to know. And I started doing a little thing here and a little thing there. And I was earning 80% of, uh, what I was doing before, and I wasn't heavily committed. I wasn't heavily indebted. I wasn't. I didn't have this monster business that I had to keep feeding and stuff like that. And I just carried on living the rest of my life like that. And it's been okay. absolute heaven, you know. <laughs> so from all of that disaster and trauma and all that kind of stuff, it forced me into an avenue where you're going to behave and live a certain way. Mm. And it's just become my like way of life and I love it. <laughs> kind so, of uh, describe myself as a bit of a um, wealthy hippie, you know, <laughs> bumming around doing little projects here and there and going on adventures, adventures here yeah. and there. And I've maintained uh, a portion of my life is adventure and a portion of it is uh, focused and serious and, uh, and <laughs> well, it's been amazing. What, I, uh, what I'd like to know then is, uh, you know, you go on holiday or you have a stressful time and uh, there's a period where it takes a while to either unwind from the stressful period on holiday. Let's say you take a three-week break. You know, it's day seven or eight and you feel like, okay, now I'm rested. Or you've been on holiday for a long time in adventure and it's two, three weeks in where you feel like, okay, I feel like I'm back in the groove. At the end of this trip, how long did it take you to feel like things were settled? Because you came back with some serious trauma. Was it, yeah. was it weeks, months? No, it's, I don't think it ever stops. Mm. Even question mark, you know, years later is still mm. what part is what. And like recently I was up in the Alps, climbing in the Alps um, to the top of Mont Blanc and this and that and the next thing and rock climbing some little pieces here and there. And then we went on to the Matterhorn, and the Matterhorn is kind of got a very high death rate on it, you know. So it's okay. a it's a dangerous thing to do, and it's not because of the difficulty; it's because of how steep and exposed it is. You make a mistake, you're all the way down. Um, and I was on the Matterhorn with a young guy who is kind of probably as cocky as I was <laughs> before I left on the uh, on the bike ride trip, you know, that sort of thing. And I just, I, so I could relate to him and where he was coming from. And now we're climbing this Matterhorn and stuff. And you and depend on each other. This is no, a, totally. Yeah. You're roped in and all that sort of stuff. And then I looked at what we were doing and I just thought, uh-uh, I, I recognize this. I mean, it, it, we're probably going to make it, but that doesn't matter. What mattered to me was the fact that we weren't prepared properly. We weren't functioning as a team. He was in certain respects um, uh, stronger than me and faster than me. But he, didn't, but he didn't know other aspects of uh, roping and how we 
clipping in and, and putting in gear and all the rest. And he wasn't interested in it. He just wanted to bullet his way up. And I was like, no, 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 no. You put in gear now, you know, you anchor us in and then we move on and so on. And it was a whole lot of little things that going on that my experience could look at all of that. And as you mentioned, the holes in the cheese, I could see that is taking a risk, this is taking a risk, this is taking a risk, add this too much, we too too close to the limits. Mm. Just And I just pulled the plug on him and I said, we're going straight down, we're not carrying on. We got high up near the top and I pulled the plug and I said, we're going down. And it was purely because of that fear and this analyzing of the mm. scenario, it is not a perfect picture and yeah. not going to wait for the straw that breaks the camel's back. This will be backing off right now. And we got off and... You know, he was very mature about it, but to get to the top of a mountain like that, which is kind of a nice one to tick off in your little resume to say mm. I conquered old uh, Matterhorn there and to walk away from it, oh, that is big. And, uh, you know, it's. I'm glad to say that at least I got some sanity back. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> that was a check. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it strikes me that you've learned a lot on that, your Michael, trip around the world and the trauma and the tragedy. It has, it definitely impacted you. But I would challenge you to say that there's possibly even that level of um, uh, preparation and the risk averseness within the confines of being exciting and adventure and all that. There's an element of the safety factor that's inherent in you, which you, you maybe you didn't push enough on the journey, and 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 you you operated in a way you didn't like. Or what what would you say? Would you would you think that there was there was always inherently there, and you didn't exercise it properly, or do you think you've changed significantly since the tragedy? Um, so to rephrase that, you're saying that maybe I hadn't fulfilled all my extreme. Uh, kind of desires in the trip that there's still some left over that no, I go No, no, no. I'm saying that um, the way you describe going up the Matterhorn, nearly there, you know what, we're going to pull the plug on this. Uh, you possibly wouldn't have done that when you were 25. Definitely you, you wouldn't not. have pulled the plug. However, you had that inherent risk averse, I've got to do things properly, and maybe the voice wasn't loud enough. It was always within you to say, listen, think about this thing. And maybe you say, oh, fuck it, I'm not going to bother. I'm going to carry on. And it, I'm challenging you to say, was it always a quiet voice inside you that didn't get enough airplay or did you change significantly after the tragedy where all of a sudden you have to refocus on how you look at everything? Uh, definitely time, maturity, all this kind of stuff. The analyzing of risk um, comes with experience. Mm. And when you're young, you don't have experience. Even that little voice isn't there, it doesn't exist when you're young. You mm. You just, but it takes experiences. And as we were ta saying about flying, you have these occasional near misses. And it takes those things to, for us to actually function mm. properly and better. Yeah. You know, it's, um, yeah, it's, I look at, I look at risk now and what I'm doing and all that sort of stuff. And I know the point, I'm going to pull the plug. Having the strength of character, I don't know if it's character, but having the strength to pull the plug on something that's important to you, mm. I think that's a that's a that's big maturity. That's a big place to arrive at, <laughs> you know, to to do that. Um, and like the Matterhorn was the most perfect weather you could ever have imagined. 
clear skies the whole two there was no wind at the top and all that sort of stuff it was impossible to get better but still to pull a plug under those circumstances mm. is 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 a big place you've arrived at but i don't have a problem with it now yeah and and the reason i don't have a problem is is because even since the microlighting expedition i've done quite a lot of other adventures yeah, yeah. and each time you kind of learn analyze you reflect and you realize this is the way to play the game you can play this game much bigger and better than anybody else if you know how to manage it better than they do. Yeah. And that's what you do. And I've seen many, uh, like, for example, I don't know if you know Mike Horn is the biggest mm. living, uh, mm. living adventurer in the world. I mean, I've uh, followed him and I've met him a few times and stuff like that and noted how he functions. And, I mean, there was the one time, his biggest nemesis or whatever challenge has been the K2. He's climbed everything and he climbed everything without oxygen. Everest, Everest he doesn't even bother with Everest. It's so Mickey Mouse. You know, he's, and in one month he climbed three 8,000-meter peaks, no oxygen, and nobody yeah. does that. That's superhuman stuff. And um, K2's been bugging him for a while, and he's been there a few, few attempts. And on one of the attempts he went, he got to quite very near the top, over the 7,000-meter mark, and, um, and he turned around and pulled the plug. He said, no, we're going down. And, the, of course, there's a guy like Mike Horn on the mountain. Everybody listens. You know, you're not going to go against that. And his thing was, he had no idea. Like, he can't tell me why. Well, not me. He couldn't tell anybody there um, why he was doing it. The snow felt wrong. This felt wrong. He says, this is this just not right. Mm. And he, they backed off. Off they went. And the father and son remained because the weather, everything was right, and they're going to do it the next day. Avalanche came down; they all they were killed sure. on the mountain. And then you look at that Mike Horn's decision. That's that's where it's at, you mm. know. And to get there is poof. It's a long, hard uh, road of <laughs> having to endure a lot to to get to a point where he can't put his finger on it, but he knows it's wrong. He knows it's there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that Matterhorn made me realize that. Maybe I've got that too. I don't know. Mm. I really don't know. But I don't want to, as long as I can, I can say no. In fact, if you had to ask me what's the biggest thing I fear in my life, I, or with fear, I, is I know me. I fear me the most. And okay. that microlighting trip made me realize I'll take myself to the death. Mm. If I, so don't ever, so don't ever enter that, don't mm. ever enter that arena. Because mm. if I know if I enter that arena, I know where it'll go. Mm. And I just, that, was a very frightening space to get into that you're able to go to that point. Yeah. I don't know if it's a strength either. You know, some people might think it's all big and tough. No, I don't think it is. There's something very weird there that's, uh, you know, and I can understand how people, I mean, you look at these people during the the Second World War and everything, going onto the beaches in Normandy, they knew they were going to go and die, but they're still going. Mm. You need to ask yourself what goes on in that person's mind that they can take themselves there. Yeah. And that's the stuff I'm talking about. It's just like you don't want to go there. You don't want to test yourself to that limit. Just yeah. Leave, just leave that, that <laughs> space alone. <laughs> but I must say, Ricky, it's been wonderful chatting with you. I really enjoyed the book and uh, I'm going to, you know, obviously you're going to have to sign my copy as well. Thank you for that. But uh, uh, sort of as a parting thought here, what are you – We've got lots to talk about again. I think we can have another conversation in, in a few months' time because you've done lots of other things. This was 20 years ago, your flight now, the Freedom Flight. But uh, you're taking a more philosophical view of life. But what are you busy with now? What's the, what's, what can people expect from Ricky? And if people want to reach out to you, how would they get hold of you? What, are you still involved in the, in the public eye at all? 
Oh, look, I'm out there on Facebook and Instagram, Ricky Diagrella, and you'll find me there. Or even look up Ricky Diagrella microlighting. Somewhere there's something else will pop up. Um, but what I'm on to now, look, since the microlighting thing and, and not getting too deeply involved in business, I've managed to live a life predominantly of adventure and also business. So there's a deep responsibility and commitment and all that sort of stuff. And on the business side, I've done reasonably well, you know, and I'm very, very happy where, you know, I haven't uh, financially, I've been able to uh, fulfill everything I wanted to do mm -hmm. um, and open and do big adventures, some of which cost a pretty penny, which my daughter complains about her inheritance, but Bad luck for her. <laughs> you know, things like going down to the South Pole, cost you an arm and a leg. Doing a lot of these uh, adventures mm. are, you know, pretty expensive stuff and to maintain yourself living in mm. between all of it. So to have grown in a business um, perspective and still maintain that um, lifestyle, um, I, I think it's an equilibrium I've been extremely happy with to experience the world, motorbiking, Americas, and do you name it. It's just all over, riding four by fours from Cape Town to Mongolia and stuff like that. It's, sure. it's you know, it's been an incredible life journey that I've been on. Mm -hmm. And um, what I'm trying to do now is actually just impart, impart that onto other people. It's because so many people, especially with Instagram and the likes, they see these pretty pictures and they want to go and stand on some mountain and take and live this van life or whatever it is, you know, live yeah. this life of adventure. Now, um, I want to just put out there the practical side of it, how you actually arrange your life. You know, mm -hmm. you don't up just say, I'm going to leave my job and go and do that. That's like, sure. yeah. you know, irresponsible and stupid and you're just not uh, feasible. You know, you've got to financially establish yourself. You've got to family establish yourself you go to socially and all that sort of stuff where you're going to be based where you're going to live how you're going to structure all of this and it's, it doesn't need to be all something you do tomorrow before mm -hmm. you go on an adventure but just have the big plan yeah. so that you can structure yourself so you can have sustained adventures um over time which is extremely exciting way of, of living life so i'm putting out there the the little nuggets that I've collected along the way of how to live life. And some of them have been coincidental and some of them have been planned. And um, yeah, you can live an incredible life. Um, just make it happen and organize it and stuff like that. And if, uh, if somebody comes up with a crazy idea and they want you as some kind of a mentor, do you see yourself getting involved in someone's project? I'd say I would get involved in somebody's project. Um, depending on a certain dynamics, you've got mm -hmm. to be able to work together. Mm. But it's not uh, off the table. There's a, you know, you could, no, you could no, not off the table. Like, look at this 21 year old that dragged me up and down the Alps for two months. You know, you know, somebody comes <laughs> along <laughs> and catches me, I go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my my big thing is just to put out there how to live a life of adventure, the art of living an adventure. Okay, that sounds great, Ricky. It's been great chatting with you. Thanks for your time. I appreciate you coming in. Absolute pleasure, and thanks, Alex, for having me. Yeah, good stuff.